Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Code and Pixel podcast. My name is Ada Kunlai and I'm joined by my co-host Kelly. Hey Kelly, who are we talking to today? Hey Ada Kunlai, we are joined today by Aziz Ramos. Aziz works at Peloton. Hey Aziz, can you tell us about Peloton and your role there? Yeah, so right now I am a UX engineer working on a design system at Peloton. So I, for people who don't know what Peloton is, it's like the, it's like this high tech company that's like the, uh, the bikes. It was like workout bikes in the house. I'm very new to Peloton. I actually joined like maybe two months ago. So I'm like learning more about the company, but I was brought on to the team to kind of work on a design system that they have not fully flushed out yet. And what they're trying to do is like build a consistent design system that works on their web the, and the iOS and Android side. Very cool. So you mentioned that you've joined fairly recently. Uh, can you walk us through your career and your the different roles you had leading up to your current role? Man, so I guess my professional career kind of started off doing graphic design, even though I studied computer science and IT in college. I thought that co college was a very, like, it's very robust. It was super boring. I had to learn Java, C, C plus and assembly, a lot of things that I don't use in the professional setting. I'm a very visual learner. And when I was, I guess my first way of getting into the code space, code and design space was like MySpace and HTML and like hacking into my video games and like the PSP and the Nintendo Wii. And then like, not only was I getting all like cool games for free, I was like playing a lot of playing front, playing a lot with the UI. Cause you know, all of these things were open source and like, Hey, you could like design your Nintendo Wii UI, the PSP stuff. And I'm like, Oh, this is kind of cool. So I would like sneak and get my mom's laptop, download Photoshop and GIMP and export a lot of icons and learn so much. And I was doing that like 14, 15, but kind of fast forward that huge gap academically, I never really had anything that was adjacent to it. So my first job was like, let me just do graphic design. So I was doing uh, graphic design for this startup called Major League Hacking. I don't know if y'all heard of that. I was the first employee there and it was, I did everything. I'd like print design, web design. I did the front end development, you know, sticker stuff, t-shirts event branding and I was like well okay I want to be able to take I still need to find that sense of like code and design so I was like let me just do web development but web development then became front-end development the full stack and I'm like this is too much of a black hole that I really don't like then I was like okay let me where's the design side so that's when I started seeing a lot of like uh, product design UI UX design stuff I didn't really have like a sense of what that truly meant until I had to learn on the job what those like actual principles were. Then I'm like, okay, design's kind of boring. I didn't like how I was designing stuff and things were being taken away until I landed at a health company, Atlantic Health, Atlantic Health System in Jersey. And the role was product design. It was a senior product design role, but I did so much more than product design. The guy was like, hey, can you like build these React components? I was like, shoot yeah I, I could do it i'm down to do it and he's like yeah so like we have this like major flask app but can you build those components on top of the flask i'm like yeah i've never really worked with python before 
but it was something that was it was that joy that I had when I was like 14, 15 years old of being fully immersed into the interface and designing and building those components and having a lot of creative control of what I was actually making. And then fast forward into Salesforce was like a pure UX engineering role, which is I was like, I've never heard of that role before. So it was nice to kind of work on a job where that was my daily task and I didn't have to compromise between the two. And then all these massive layoffs happened recently. So I was like, yo, I kind of, I need a job. I need to do something. New York's a little too expensive. And Peloton's like, hey, can you join our team and build our designs? It's like, shoot, let's do it. I love that you brought up gaming as a fellow gamer. can totally relate to when I like hack on things and play on the icon. So super cool. <laughs> so uh, let's. Uh, talk about what you're doing uh, now at Peloton. You, were, you mentioned before creating like a cross-platform language uh, with the design system. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what is the current state of the Peloton design system and what does it look like right now? It's in progress. It's a work in progress. It's very brand new. And I think, man, where do I even begin? So I've really been seeing a lot of people out there talking so much about the design system world but i guess the state of where peloton is right now is like we're in the part of the complexity of design tokens and how we want to kind of how do we want to like define the schema like the json library of it so it's like do we start on the design side do designers have the creative control of what the schema actually looks like on the token studios, like it, it doesn't have to be token studio. Does it have to be style dictionary? Does it have to be specified? Does, is there's like a plethora of tools out there. And it's like trying to, I guess, play quarterback or like play referee, like having the designers understand, like, don't compare yourself to a lot of the things that are out there, like Polaris and I don't know, like Atlassian, all these things. People want to like model themselves after a lot of very successful design systems. But I feel like designers don't truly understand that like design systems is not like a one size fits all type of thing. So the beginning of design systems always comes with like the governance of design tokens, how they need to be structured, how you're going to get your engineers to kind of agree on the, the flexibility of the schema. Because a lot of engineers need to know like, hey, I don't want you to give me like this super rigid thing that token studio, like engineers are like, like all right, you're giving me this schema. Like, I, like I don't want to use it because what happens to engineers? They're very quick to sit, get defensive about the code that they're writing. So if you're giving them something like that becomes law, they are really are like immediately turn their backs against it. So you know you have to bring engineers, product managers, directors, VPs, any stakeholders in, like involves early on, and that's where we're at right now, Peloton, just to make sure that we have the right library that works yeah design tokens are such a big part about a big part of design systems because it's like a foundational part like a domino effect you mess up tokens and then you mess up simple things like buttons and the next thing a modal looks really strange so would you say that uh working on design tokens and setting up the schema is the biggest challenge or are there other large challenges that uh, you're trying to solve for? Uh, man, uh, a potential rebrand. I think that's an, another major wrench in the process. 
because I'm starting to notice a lot of brands, not just Peloton, but like a lot of companies now are not, they're not trying to stick to here's our colors. Like here's a primary, secondary, tertiary, here's our fonts. This and third, like a lot of brands, they want to be like a Nike or an Apple, like where they have the creative freedom to kind of mix and match. If can have a little freedom on the shadows, a little freedom on the colors here and there. Can they like stretch out? Can they have like fluid text that spans across the viewport of the screen? Can they, they want to be able to explore different things without breaking too much of the rules. They want to be able to bend the rules of the brand guide a little bit more. So that's another challenge we're looking to, we're looking, we're facing right now. It's like, how do we create a design system that allows designers to kind of feel less constricted? And I guess another challenge is uh, the, I guess, the, using the right tools. I think finding the right design system tools has been a challenge because I think I mentioned this before, there's like a plethora of tools out there, but the export only takes you so far. It's just like, well, okay, you give me a lot of these individual tokens on Swift or Compose, Kotlin, and the JavaScript. But then for some reason, I always find myself trying to create like a middleware that transforms the data for very specific use cases. So for example, it's like, if I want to like just print out a list of my color tokens on the documentation page, specify or, or style dictionary doesn't give me like a, an array that just outputs that list. I have to like create a, an array list that just pushes those things in there. So it's like, what am I even spending time with these things for? And also I think the documentation for some of these tools are, are kind of limiting. So sometimes like writing some middlewares is also a bit tough. Yeah, that's a, I think that's interesting where it's like a lot of times when you think about design systems, there's always like this tooling aspect that we have to kind of deal with. And that kind of leads us to the theme of our episode, which is US engineering as a competitive advantage. So I'm wondering from your standpoint, what are some of the core principles of UX engineering and what skills and qualities are necessary to excel in this field? So I guess the core principles of UX engineering in this role is like, man, it's, a, it's okay. There's a lot. So I think the first one is like, you, you need to have like, you need to have your core UX principles down pat. Cause like the true essence of a UX engineer outside of design systems is more like the each component that you're making, you need to have like the accessibility in mind. So like it has to be completely functional. You have to be really detail oriented. So like the classic thing that I always bring up is like the button, for instance, like according to the WCAG, the web content accessibility guidelines, like the button needs to be a certain height, certain space for a person to click on. Like, so like if I'm creating something and also to a color, so it's like, okay, get your a designers giving me a bunch of colors, but like, is it accessible? Like, is it a big enough contrast? Like what's your light and dark mode in these things? So like, it's you look beyond the eye candy and the beauty of the button itself. And you have to understand the beauty of the button also comes with functionality as well and how it's going to apply in different settings. Is this button going to be a fixed width? Does it span across the card? Like where else is it going to be? Like, is it rounded? What's the nature of it being rounded? Is it supposed to convey that it's, are we a playful brand or is it something that like, what's the expression behind the rounded corners? So everything becomes a lot more intentional 
with the as a UX designer, a UX engineer, sorry. And uh, I guess another, like something valuable that you need to have, like a skill wise is if you have like the, if you have the ability to prototype a lot of designs with HTML, C HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, I think that takes you a lot further. I think a lot of you, you are UX designers, I think the thing that I see them a lot is they stop at the, like the Figma side. They stop at that point. It's like, there's much more to your design and Figma. It's just like, aren't you curious to know exactly where your design goes and how it's going to be managed? Like, I think if you had any just basics of HTML semantics, CSS, and just a little bit of vanilla JavaScript, and I think even jQuery is a good enough way for you to start because just to be able to like manipulate the DOM and just to see exactly how things are going, this is like, it sets you apart very far. Yeah, I agree. I remember back in the days I used to, I think I was using Flash. I mean, that's like super old school, but it kind of got the job done when it was like, at a design, but also wanted to like, to see how it like moved and like if people clicked on it. And this is back in the day where it had like, like, don't do this, but it was had music and click sounds. Uh, so it's like you click on something, it was like, and I was like, oh, this is hot. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that you should do that today because uh, that's kind of annoying. Yeah. But you did mention about like how uh, the benefits of it and with more and more companies investing in UX engineering, what are some of the things, why would folks focus on UX engineering, but also like, what are some of the like benefits of like it being uh, a beneficial for companies to invest in UX engineering as a practice and stay innovative? Oof, okay. Yo, where do I even begin with that? <laughs> so that mine is like pretty loaded. So I'm more, so I'm like an entrepreneur first. So I think UX engineering is a good role to like to become because it's especially with a lot of companies now becoming much leaner and they're trying to bridge the gap between design and engineering intentionally because they're trying to reduce costs, increase development speed, also like educate people, educate the cross-disciplinary teams on like accessibility a lot more. They're trying to make things a lot more inclusive when it comes to the UI of your products. So I think UX engineering in that regard, whether you're a full-time employee or a solopreneur, is extremely valuable for any type of team. And I think UX engineers are very powerful in that case because it's like, once the job is done, it's like, we can maintain it. And then also we can maintain the product as well. And also like, there's so many teams that we could be involved in. You know, we could be a stakeholder in so many different aspects. Like, and we can engage with a UX researcher. We can engage with a product manager, a director, a designer, and an engineer. So we can, we speak a lot of different languages. Every single player on a team, like, does says. So it's like, it's such an underrated position. And I think it's really exciting to see that a lot of people are starting to see the, the true power and benefits of a UX engineer right now. But I think it's more beneficial if you're like an entrepreneur and you really truly see the benefits of and the impact, I think, of the work you're doing. Yeah, I think you, I think that you're kind of correct on like it being beneficial for like entrepreneurship because again, you're going to 
wear many hats if you're going to take a product from start to finish. And I always find that like when you're working with within a company, it's kind of similar where if you're like building a new feature or whatever, and they don't have any resources or any design resources, researcher or whatnot, like you can kind of take it from concept to completion. So mm-hmm. so it's like a, you always will have a place on a team. And to lead to our next question, like, again, US engineering is like a big role. There's a lot to do. What are some of the common mistakes that you see UF engineers make and how can we, how can uh, these be avoided? I would say like from my personal experience, like, like mistakes that I've made as a UX engineer, I think, I, I think that the fact that I do have the ability to kind of do both, I kind of take the initiative, like. I feel like as a U.S. engineer, I tend to want to be a driver of things like because, oh, I OK, I just prototype it. I could do this. I could do that. But sometimes like a lot of the work that you if you take initiative, a lot of the times I always find that like it's not even work that, you know, I need to be doing. It's probably not even my job. Like for me to create like a plan with this prototype, it's not even my job. It's a director. It's a product manager. Like. So I end up burning myself out a lot quicker than I need to, especially because like being a UX engineer, it's a lot of work. Like I can either be designing something in Figma or I could be building something out in the code base. So that's one mistake that I do tend to make quite a bit because I just like, I get super trigger happy. I was like, all right, cool. I could just do that. I don't have to wait on nobody. Like I have access to every single platform. It's lit. I'm having so much fun, but they're like, Aziz, like it's cute, but you don't need that right now. Another mistake I think UX engineers could possibly make is not not getting in, in meetings as soon as possible. It, it's not really like a mistake. It can't really entirely be on the US engineer. It, it goes both ways. Like I try and tell product managers, like it, UX engineers are never on the meetings that they need to be on, right? Like I think more than half the time. I think product managers, they're on meetings, but it's just like, it's good that they're on there, but they actually can't do the work that we're doing. So why aren't we on there? So I think early on, like when I was at companies like Atlantic Health and Salesforce and now Peloton, I would say like, yo, like on Mondays, like, yo, what are some meetings I have in this week? Like where you guys are talking about the possible rebrand or are you meeting with someone that's going to impact the work that I'm doing? Please let me know ASAP because I don't want to go ahead and start working on these things that you told me to work on a couple of months ago and now I have to scrap it and start from the beginning. So yeah, just be collaborative, communicate as much as possible, ask a lot of questions, try and send as many meetings as possible. Yeah, Hunter, I agree with uh, the burnout. I think I burned myself out early in my career where I was like, I could do anything, I don't care. And <laughs> I ended up doing like so many prototypes and then I forgot to ask the question why because I'm like, wait, is this what I should be working on? Is this like the right thing to be working? Like, so that has been super helpful. And also like not trying to design and code at the same time, because I think context switching is like, that's the biggest thing to burn out where you're like going from Figma, then going to code and doing like some other stuff. And then you sketch in, it was like way too much. Uh, so those are like a couple of things. And then last question, this is more like high level, but one of your thoughts on this. So we're often like faced with a dilemma between abiding by the latest trends or sticking with the try to true foundations. How do you strike a balance that works for both 
design and engineering perspective. And this could regards to like new tools, but also frameworks and like, especially with design, there's always a case where you want to follow the try to choose solution versus like, hey, we want to have this like round rounded bu button with some sparkling, like some glow in the dark and all this other stuff. But I'm just wondering your thoughts. So your question is, how do I keep up with the trends and like, and trying to decide whether or not how to apply the trends and like what I'm doing in my day to day? Yeah. Man. So I'm not gonna lie. I gotta be honest with you. Like a lot of the trends are super overwhelming. It's way too much. <laughs> like, yeah. So, I mean, I have to keep up with the trends because I, you never know which one is actually going to speed up the process and make me more productive and more efficient. Uh, I think those are things that I look out for. But when it comes to like the visual stuff or like the eye candy, like what those new trends are, I'm like, does this actually work with your, like, does this work with the identity of the brand that we're working with right now? And if, I mean, if it's, if it doesn't, and if we're looking to explore it, like, let's talk about it. You know what I mean? And when it comes to, when it comes to, I guess, getting inspiration for trends, like, I honestly don't look at other tech products first. I actually look at other things because I design other things. Like I, I could build furniture, like I'll make, make a puppet, like even just like making beats. Like there's a, like the concept of designing is applied in so many different things, right? It's like you have a broad vision of what you want to do and you want to apply the different ingredients to make the end product. So it's like with UX engineering, it's kind of like the same thing. It's like, you have like it's making furniture it's like you have all the tools in your garage and it's like okay cool i'm getting to a point where making this table is like getting redundant is there something else that i need right now to make me more efficient i think that's much more important than the visual aspect of it because i feel like i'm only as good as the tools that i got in in, in my garage so i'm very intentional what i just kind of use i'm not quick to hurry up and use the cutest looking thing because it just may not even work, honestly. <laughs> I now am very curious about your hobbies and oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to see what your garage looks like. It sounds awesome. Yeah. And it's super cool that you use outside inspiration. I think that's really refreshing to hear because we're so eager to find the trendiest pattern and it's nice to see some like analog and other types of inspiration so that's super cool yeah, uh, yeah so i wanted to uh shift gears and talk a little bit more about bridging the gap between design and engineering and so my next question is about how do you effectively convey any technical issues or constraints to designers you mentioned before accessibility with buttons, uh, the the font size and the tap area. So I'm just curious, how do you have those conversations with designers? Yeah, so I, I, how I have those conversations, I like to have them as like educational, like informing them, making it inclusive, because designers tend to feel like they're excluded from a lot of these types of conversations with like, on the behind the scenes, it's like 
they want to be involved as much as possible. And a lot of these tools like Framer and Figma and all these plugins that are being made right now is trying to help the designer understand what goes into the actual process of making some of these things. So let's say, for example, like, like a technical thing. A designer wants to use Token Studio, right? And they're like, we want to use this. It's the hottest thing out there. Everyone's using it. And they're, I, I kid you not, their validation for using Token Studio is like, yeah, it's over 180,000 people have downloaded it. So it has to be good. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let me check this thing out. I look at it. I checked the JSON scheme. I was like, all right, cool. It's cool, but I need to see if this schema thing is valid. So I look at the schema. I see like they, there's like a group of, I can't remember the name of the design group that like kind of, there's like a community that kind of decides they, man, I'm blanking out. I'm so embarrassed. But anyway, it's like I look at it, they say like, okay, each one of these objects need to have a type a value and the name of the thing. I'm like, okay, cool. Does token studio provide that? Okay, fine. Does the engineer, can the engineer play with this information? Does this actually work with what they're working on in, the, in their backend? They say, no, it doesn't. Why doesn't it work? It's like, well, it's a little too rigid. Okay, I go to the designer, like, hey, Toka Studio works for, all, works for us a, to a certain extent. So you can, we can use it until the engineer needs to find a way to transform the data. So can you remodel your token schema like this can you have it at the, have your reference tokens here can you can you like flatten your system tokens just a little tiny bit more so that the engineer can kind of take this and do that okay cool all right fine and they were like what is assist like why do we have to do this but i do that well because it's less efficient if the engineer has to iterate to a second level it's probably best if you could just flatten a tiny bit more so it's more like I'm not trying to exclude the designer from doing what they want to do on the side, but also let them know, like, here's how we can meet. Let's meet halfway. Let's try not to make the engineers the engineer's job uh, like a living hell trying to build these things <laughs> as well as you guys get to have fun and do what you want to do with Figma. And there's so many there's so many aspects of that everywhere. And I think lastly kind of tell engine tell designers what cable what their what the capabilities are of the product versus what their limitations are they don't want to feel limited so i would say like hey you're designing thing but here's what we kind of have on the list kind of use that and remix it however you want as we eventually get to a point where if we run into a wall we have to sit down as a team and improve and actually make a new feature that we can all agree on later on but for now kind of use this for the next couple of months <laughs> yeah I, i'm laughing at the the comment to make not make your engineer's life a living hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah on the flip side of that what can designers do to make an engineer's life a little easier and have them be more part of that design process yeah, you just kind of said it. I think designers need to bring engineers early on. I think when you have a design system or something brand new that you, you want to introduce, I feel like engineers tend to be the last pe one of the last people to know. They're like, we have this new thing. Here's a new law. Here's a new religion. Y'all have to abide by it. And engineers like, 
Yeah, nah, I'm not going to use that, man. I'm going to go into the NPM. I'm going to hack it. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's what happens. A lot of things slip through the cracks and there's less communication. Well, it's because engineers are the only people that know how to work the thing. Designers don't actually know why. And then designers get kind of confused. Like, why is it every time I send y'all something doesn't look exactly the way I want it to? Because engineers are just trying to get the job done. And also engineers don't want to feel like a certain role or some position has more power. Everything is equal playing. So for, for, like I said before, it's like, bring the engineer early, let them know like, Hey, we're thinking about using this tool. How does this fit within the pipeline of making the products work? I love how you talk about collaboration. You've mentioned bringing folks in earlier, kind of having it be dumped on their lap, like go build this thing. So that context really helps. Yeah. So I was wondering, we've talked about this partnership, design engineering working closer, get close together, but what happens when, you know, they're at odds with each other? There's a disagreement between the two groups on how something should be done. What are some things that can be, what are some actions that can be taken to reach a resolution or at least reach a, a direction forward? Yeah. I, man, it happens quite a bit. There's always tension. like, And the tension always comes from like both the designer and engineer is kind of saying the same thing, but they're not understanding each other's perspective. So it's like, I'm always kind of in the middle. So I'm just like, well, I, I understand what the engineer guy is saying because technically I know exactly how to build that. And the, and the designer says like, oh, snap, I do sympathize with that. So it's more like, how do you find the common denominator that takes this like low stakes, depending on what side works? So it's like, and then you have to present it in a way where like, I'm not favoring one approach more than the other. It's just like, based on timeline, based on objectives, based on sprints, based on high level decision making, or whether it's a goal of rebrand or whatever we need to do, like, the common denominator is like, you have to do this little thing. So let's decide that this needs to be the MVP. And let's just start with this first, see how this works. And progress makes, it's like progress over perfection. I feel like a lot of times, like the tension always comes from which one is the much better approach, which one is the more perfect route when there really isn't a perfect route. It's just more like you need a starting point that's like not expensive when it comes to time and like development costs yeah i'm a hundred percent agree with you on that i feel like i think sometimes when i'm i feel like a consultant could like i always try to find do it the designer way the engineer way and then a little bit of both and everyone always ends up with like the third like agree with the third option which is like uh the cheapest fastest way because i think as you as engineers we're just like we're just trying to get the job done and move forward. So, but yeah, like to close out the episode, let's say someone is graduating school and they're like, Ooh, I want to be a UX engineer. I don't know how to do that. What is one piece of advice you would give them? Don't be afraid to take the risk. Like, like if there's something that you really want to do, don't just do it. Like I can't tell you how many times where early on in my career that I wish that I kind of taken I kind of wish I gave myself permission a lot sooner. Like, 
I can't tell you how many times like, man, I stayed in this role for too long. I wish I kind of just like jammed out and built this one thing myself. Like over time, you're going to get more comfortable. And I think it is kind of challenging if someone is design focused, it probably might feel uncomfortable to hop in and build some prototype on CodePen. But man, if, if your entryway of becoming a UX engineer is to just work with P5.js, or code pen or anything that's like super visual. You just need to see exactly what you're building and what it like how it's interacting between yourself and the browser or your phone or whatever. Like there are tools out there that doesn't take that much much to learn. And yeah, just give yourself permission and take as many risks as possible. Yeah, I love that. Uh where can folks find you? Uh they can find me. Oh man, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, on Twitter, uh, uh, and I, I they could check out my personal site as well. But yeah, that, that those are where that's where you can find me. Cool. And the last question: Do you have anything to plug? Uh, I if do I have anything to plug? I just want to give Dan Maul a special shout out. I think somebody that I've been working closely with recently, I think just to be completely open, there's not a lot of POC in a space that I really feel comfortable with. And he's someone that like welcomed me with open arms into the space and shed some light on how I could be much more impactful for the community. So I got to give a special shout out to him. And uh, yes, that's pretty much it. Yeah, shout out to Dan Mao. I think uh, he's he's always uh, giving some words of wisdom that has uh, been super helpful for me. So special shout out. Cool, Aziz. Well, thanks again for joining us on this episode. And we also like to thank our listeners for listening. Uh, if you want to listen to older episodes, feel free to visit our website, codeandpixels.fm. We also on the social. So we got Instagram, we got Twitter, we got LinkedIn. TikTok is a work in progress, but, you know, we're going to figure out sooner or later. But uh, cool. Thanks again and have a good one. You too. Thank you so much for having me and have a blessed Monday. Peace.